listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. We are reading the Word of God as written in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and happy Father's Day. Uh, My wife and I are congenitally incapable of remembering any holidays other than Christmas, Easter, and National Star Wars Day. And so, um, so when we're planning out the sermon series, we, it never occurred to us, it never occurred to me anyway, I'd be uh, preaching on the topic of divorce on Father's Day. Uh, actually, during Amelia's prayer, um, when, when Amelia said, and we, we thank you for our fathers, Jenna poked me and went, oh no, it's Father's Day, isn't it? <laughs> so, uh, leftovers for lunch. Um, Anyway, happy Father's Day. We're going to talk about divorce. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know, we've been tackling this big, huge topic of sex and sexuality, and we've been looking at it through the lens of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, His Sermon on the Mount is his classic discipleship manual. It's it's Jesus' vision of what a life lived in relationship with God in anticipation of the coming kingdom, what that, that life looks like. In other words, it's, you know, it's how are we supposed to live while we wait for God to bring heaven back to earth? And Jesus' answer is the Sermon on the Mount. This gives us really practical ways to wisely grow in whole person righteousness. Now, we've been at this topic of sex and sexuality for a couple of weeks now because we, we took a week to understand the background beliefs that Jesus held, and then a week trying to understand his specific teaching uh, in verses 27 through 30, and then a week looking at, well, how did uh, the Apostle Paul kind of apply that in the early churches that he was ministering to? This week, we're going to kind of do those same three things, uh, but we're going to put it all into one sermon and centered around the question of divorce. Now, why divorce? Why does Jesus address the question of divorce right after the question of, of adultery, lust, and sex, and sexuality? Probably, at least this is my best guess at it, is, you know, we all know that it's passion that motivates love and sexual intimacy that deepens love, but it is commitment, specifically the the marriage commitment, that protects love, that provides a safe environment in which which the self-giving mutual love that sex pictures can, can grow and thrive. So we're never going to be, understand, be able to understand sex and sexuality unless we understand the environment within which God designed for our sexuality to thrive and to really be a blessing, not a way that we take and consume from other people, but a way that we give life. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, just two verses, 31 and 32. If, you're, if you grab one of those Bibles under the seat in front of you, it's on page 963. We're going to spend some time looking at the original context that Jesus pulls this quote from. Uh, we're going to try to understand Jesus' teaching on this topic. And then before we look at how it might apply to us, we're going to look at it through the lens of how Paul applied it in that same letter 
to the Corinthians we looked at last week. And by the way, I must say, I've really enjoyed the questions you all have been sending in. So if at any point during this sermon you think of something or when you're thinking of it later, you're like, I think he dodged a question there, or wait, I want to hear more about this, text it in, the number's up there on the screen, and we will do our best to respond to those questions during a special Cut for Time podcast episode we'll release midweek. So send those in. And if you're ready... And even if you're not, we're going to jump in. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. We're going to start with Jesus' quote from the Old Testament. Verse 31, he begins with, it was said. Right, every one of these six sections here has been where Jesus is taking some Old Testament teaching or law and saying, look, that's not about just a way for you to measure whether or not you're good enough for God. That law is there to kind of push your heart into conformity with what God desires for your life, even without needing that law. So verse 31, it was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, let's stop right there. We're going to consider where this came from. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 24, the first four verses of that chapter. And these are four verses that were famously debated throughout Jewish history. Even in Jesus' own time, there was a polarizing debate about this particular verse. And the original context of the quote is is fascinating. So this is uh, in, in a part of Deuteronomy where Moses is addressing specific questions on how people should live in light of the fact that God has rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He's promised to be their God and to love them and to guide them and protect them and be with them into the future. And Deuteronomy, and, and this part of Deuteronomy, is coming at the end of Moses' life. After he spent 40 years governing the people of Israel as they're wandering through the desert, hearing cases and hearing disputes and all of that. So Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy 24, there's a lot in there that is sort of this hypothetical um, or future-oriented commands. Like, hey, here's how you should live in the future when you're in the land of promise. But a lot of it is also specific responses to questions about how to live right now. Deuteronomy 24 is kind of like that. I think probably based on a lot of the the cases or types of cases Moses had heard as judge for 40 years. So in Deuteronomy 24, Moses is responding to a specific case or, or type of cases in which husbands would come to him and say, hey, I married this girl, and it was only after we were married that I discovered something indecent about her. Now, that's their words, not mine, okay? Um, and, and so these husbands are saying, now, I'm, I'm not willing to put up with this thing or forgive her or reconcile or let it go, so what should I do? I don't want to be married anymore. Now, here's the fun part. Uh, we have no idea what something indecent means. And in fact, that's actually the big debate that's going on at Jesus' time. What exactly did Moses mean by that? Now, in its original context, it could have meant adultery. That was addressed in other parts of the law. So it's not about marital unfaithfulness. It's something else, some sort of, uh, some render, like some gross immorality or something like that. But whatever it was, it was big enough and offensive enough uh, that the men in this case didn't want to stay in the marriage. He said, I've discovered this thing, I'm out, what do I need to do? And in that context, Moses allowed for divorce. 
but he required the husbands to issue a legal declaration, a certificate of divorce to the wife. This was for her protection because it proved with his signature that she wasn't acting in an immoral way. It's he who had pushed her out. So rather than her being accused of immorality, it's like, no, look, I've, I've legally been rejected here. This was to protect her so she would be free then to remarry. There, there really was no other socially acceptable way for women to be financially secure in that culture other than marriage. So this was designed to protect women. Now, by the time we get to Jesus' day, the debate on the passage is about how do you understand that phrase, something indecent? In other words, how does, a, how does a husband know, this was the question, how do I know if I have biblical grounds for divorce, that legally I'll be allowed to divorce this woman given what I've t- discovered about her or in some cases come to no longer appreciate about her? And at the time, there were two main perspectives. On the one hand, you had a group that acted sort of as the nation's uh, theologians. They said, they, they kind of focused on the phrase indecent, the, the, the word indecent in the phrase, and said, no, look, it, this is only referring to instances of sexual immorality. In their context, they would largely apply it to like adultery, marital unfaithfulness. This is the only reason for which you can legally, biblically seek a divorce. On the other hand, those who actually enforced the law focused more on the word something or anything. Said if you find anything you don't like, then you can divorce. So if a husband were to ask these guys, hey, uh, can I divorce my wife? They'd say, yeah, as long as you make it legal with a document, with a certificate, and had basically removed all restrictions, except they didn't allow women to divorce their husbands. Only husbands could divorce their wives. It's in that context that Jesus shows up on the scene and says, you know how the law says anyone who divorces his wife must give her legal papers in the divorce? Well, I say, and then we get to verse 32, so we'll shift here from the context to Jesus' teaching on divorce. Verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And these are strong words from me. He's saying, in other words, you can't get out of a marriage just by writing on a piece of parchment. It's not how it works. And he goes further. He says, in fact, if you divorce your wife, he's talking to the men here, if you divorce your wife for any reason other than sexual immorality, then you are forcing her to commit adultery. That's on you. That's not on her. That's on you. And if you divorce her for any reason other than sexual immorality, you are forcing the next person who marries her to commit adultery. That's not on them. That's on you. That's on you. Now, obviously, adultery was a big deal in Jesus's mind and in his culture. We talked about why a couple of weeks ago. Just to recap, Jesus understood adultery, which was defined as sexual intimacy with someone other than the person with whom you have a one flesh covenanted comprehensive marriage with. Jesus understood adultery then as as destructive to both you and the person that you're sleeping with because sex was designed by God 
to be the thing that, that the ceremony, the practice that continually binds together two people in a marriage covenant over and over again. Sex is covenant glue. It's a covenant renewal service. Every time a husband and wife are intimate with each other, they are renewing their vows. They're recommitting to the covenant. They're re-promising their lives, their souls, their futures to one another. That's a big deal. And so adultery was a big deal in Jesus' mind. And forcing another person to act in such a way that disintegrates them so that you can have what you want, that's using other people. That's not loving other people. So his conclusion, if you divorce someone for any reason other than that they have already severed the marriage covenant by taking that covenant renewal ceremony, sex, and acting out that covenant bond and acting out that commitment with another person they are not in covenant with. In other words, if you divorce someone for any reason other than that they have already broken the covenant, then you're forcing the other person to become a covenant breaker. You see what you're doing to them he says. So the only valid reason Jesus gives in this passage for divorce, for severing a covenant, for walking away from that covenant, the only valid reason he gives is pornea. That's the Greek word for sexual immorality in English. It's a big catch-all word for all forms and every kind of sexual immorality. The point here being, uh, you, can't, you can't break your marriage covenant, even with a certificate of divorce, unless the other person has already broken the covenant through their actions. The types of actions he specifically dials in on here in Matthew 5 is sexual immorality. So this is a, a big word that would encompass all sorts of things like having an affair, like sexual abuse or sexual assault within the marriage, through things like marital rape, which is forcing your spouse, whether through physical threats or through coercion, to be intimate when they don't want to. This could also involve things like a, a spouse that involves themselves in continuous and unrepentant use of pornography. These all fall under the big category of sexual immorality. And in every one of those cases, Jesus says, divorce is permissible because one spouse has already committed Pornea has already broken the sexual and spiritual bond of the covenant through their actions. Now, that doesn't mean that divorce is required, but that it's permissible. In some cases, like abuse or marital rape, divorce may be the wisest choice. But if the offended spouse chooses with wise counsel and lots of support to stay in the marriage and to work through it, then they can, which is actually new. At Jesus' time, they're saying, nope, if there's adultery, then you have to break the marriage. You can't stay in it and forgive and reconcile. And unlike the popular opinion at Jesus' time, when Jesus teaches on this, he says both the husband and the wife have the right to initiate a divorce if the other has already broken the covenant. 
Now, you may wonder where I'm getting that last point from. Well, Matthew 5 isn't the only place where Jesus talks about divorce. In fact, it's actually the shortest section of teaching we have on Jesus saying what he thinks about divorce. There's a much longer treatment in Matthew 19, and another version of that is also recorded in Mark 10. And in in those places, uh, the teaching in Matthew 19 and Mark 10 are are part of a a conversation Jesus is having with the religious leaders of his day, and there are a couple of key things to bring out from them uh, without going there. First is in Mark 10, verse 12, Jesus presents his teaching in such a way that uh, basically assumes either spouse can initiate a divorce that's revolutionary for the time and and really re-equalized both spouses within the marriage. But second, the main thing to focus on is that when the religious leaders asked Jesus, okay, well then why did Moses allow for divorce? Jesus tells them, Moses only allowed for this because of the hardness of their hearts. Because of their hardened hearts. Literally, the Greek word there is heart sclerosis. They've got hard hearts. And in both Mark 10 and Matthew 19, Jesus goes back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the same verses we looked at three weeks ago, to say that God never intended for a marriage to end in a divorce. God never intended for people to be able to break or even to want to break their marriage covenants with one another. But since Moses recognized that it would be better for a woman to be free from a marriage in which the husband had found some, something indecent, some offensive thing with her that he was unwilling to move forward with in forgiveness and reconciliation because the husbands weren't willing to overlook or forgive or overcome. Moses said, in that case, it's better to allow for divorce, but only with the legal documentation that would protect her from accusations of immorality or abandonment. Since these husbands weren't willing to move forward, then in order not to trap women in abusive or neglectful marriages, Moses allowed them to divorce. But here in Matthew 5, and with what we can glean from Mark 10 and Matthew 19, Jesus is saying, hey, look, if you divorce your spouse, man or woman, if you divorce your spouse for any other reason than that the other has already, through their actions, broken the one flesh covenant, then you're forcing the other spouse into a position where their remarriage constitutes adultery. Because that first bond has never actually been broken. That first link has never actually been severed. You can't just decide that your one flesh covenantal marriage bond is broken. It has to actually be broken through actions that break it. Writing on a piece of paper doesn't do it. And this is why, do you remember a couple weeks ago when we talked about what a marriage actually uh, is? And, And I said that when a man and a woman come together and are united in marriage, that union creates an entirely new being. The one fleshness of it isn't just referring to the sexual act. It's referring to them becoming, philosophers say, an ontologically new being. Okay? Uh, marriage is not just the combination of two things that go well together, like peanut butter and jelly, or peanut butter and oatmeal, or peanut butter and Eggo waffles. It's more than that. It's not like eggs on toast. You can't just separate the two, you know, scrape them apart, and they leave a little bit of residue on each other. It's more like a divorce is more like trying to pull flour and eggs out of an already baked cake. 
You can't do it. It's destructive because a new thing has been created in the joining of the two together in this comprehensive union. So to summarize Jesus' teaching on divorce, he's saying just wanting a divorce isn't enough. At least it's not biblically permissible. Wanting to get out of a relationship because it's no longer meeting your needs or you're no longer feeling consistently, positively affirmed or you're no longer compatible, whatever that means, or you're no longer interested in the other person. None of these reasons are good enough, right? Because when you get married, you make a covenantal commitment to the other person to be there no matter what happens. When you're in a covenant, you don't leave, not unless the other person breaks the covenant first. And even then, Jesus assumed you don't have to leave. And in fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, if we're living this out, if we're living into the future promise of God's good and redemptive kingdom of heaven coming back to earth, then you may choose to live out the forgiveness and the reconciliation that you have already experienced from God. And you may choose to live that into your marriage in a way that rebuilds and reinforces the covenant that's been destroyed. And those who choose to do that make a huge and difficult sacrifice. But it's possible. It's not required, but it's possible with God's grace. Now, before we kind of turn to look at how this passage in Matthew 5 maybe applies to us today, I want to filter it through the lens of how this teaching was first applied within the early church, especially in the way Paul wrote about it in that letter to the Corinthians. You know, last week when we wanted to see how Jesus' teaching on sex and sexuality was applied in the early church, we looked at St. Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And 1 Corinthians 6 gave us a lot to think about there. Well, in the same way that Jesus goes from teaching about sex and sexuality to teaching about the environment in which our sexuality thrives, Paul does the same thing, goes from teaching about sex to talking about marriage and divorce. In 1 Corinthians 7, the next chapter... We see Paul giving this pastoral counsel to a young church full of brand new believers who all grew up in a sex-saturated, anything-goes culture. They, They lived in a world where sex was used to cement business relationships, to broker political compromise, to even gain the approval of the gods. And in that church because of what they had experienced in this area of life, some of the new Christians had just come to the conclusion that sex was so dangerous and so potentially destructive that they should avoid it altogether, avoid it entirely, even live celibately within their marriages. Some had even gone so far as to divorce, believing that the more spiritual state to be in was being single, like Jesus was, like Paul was, was a more holy state. And in 1 Corinthians 7, to them, Paul says, no, no, singleness is not better than marriage, even though I'm single, he says. And marriage is not better or more holy than singleness. Each is a gift. So if you divorced your spouse out of some misguided sense of spirituality, then reconcile. And if you can't reconcile, then you need to stay single. But then he goes on, and to the mixed marriages... Uh, These are the marriages where one person comes to faith in Jesus and the other wants nothing to do with this weird new Messiah. 
Uh, Paul says, look, if the unbeliever, if, if he or she is willing to stay in the marriage, then you should stay. You never know if your influence on them might lead them to Jesus. But if the other person says, no, I'm, I'm, I don't want any part of this anymore, I'm out, then you can let them go. And divorce is permissible in that case. Now that puts us in a bit of an interpretive pickle. If we take what Jesus said and we take what Paul said and try to smash them together somehow. Uh, <laughs> Jesus says, uh, no divorce except for sexual immorality. Paul says, no divorce unless the other person leaves and then you can let them go. So which is it? Or if it's both... Is there some way that we understand both to be teaching or applying the same kind of core principle just in different areas of a marriage? And obviously, I think there is. I think there's a deeper agreement between Jesus and Paul than maybe appears on the surface. I've said already, and I'll summarize it and say it more shortly here, that divorce, according to Scripture, is only biblically permissible when one spouse has already, through their actions, broken the one flesh covenant. So what does that mean? I mean, how do you break a covenant? And are there more than one or two ways to break a covenant? Well, this is where, again, it's absolutely vital for us to understand exactly what Jesus meant when he talked about one flesh. What is a one flesh covenant? Three weeks ago, we talked about this at length, where we defined a marriage as a comprehensive covenantal union, meaning a marriage covenant is an exclusive, permanent uniting of mind, body, will, and spirit between two people, between a man and a woman. And of those four categories, mind, body, will, and spirit, Between Jesus and Paul, we can see the breaking of two of them, of two of those categories as grounds for divorce. Jesus says, look, if someone breaks the comprehensive union of your bodies together and your bodies and spirits as these, you know, you are embodied souls or enfleshed spirits, if somebody breaks that comprehensive union by taking the act that symbolizes that union and engaging in it with someone other than the one to whom they are united in covenant, then that's grounds for divorce. The covenant is destroyed when one spouse is intimate with someone other than their spouse. Paul says, if someone breaks the comprehensive union of will by abandoning the other, refusing to live in proximate relationship with them anymore, then that's grounds for divorce. The covenant is destroyed because one person has sundered their will from the other and has broken the union through abandonment. You see what's common to these two? It leads us to ask the question, if there are then other circumstances in which wise Christians could prayerfully and biblically recognize that the covenant is actually being destroyed by one spouse's actions. And I would argue that, that, yes, there are other ways to break a comprehensive union by severing mind, will, spirit, emotion, some of these things we've, we've talked about. Take the issue of abuse as an example. 
in most cases of, of abuse, one person is seeking to dominate the other one, to replace the other person's will or spirit or mind or body with their own will, with their own mind, their own thoughts, or with their own physical desires instead of with the other. In that case, the two are no longer uniting. One is replacing the other. And in a case where one is seeking to dominate the other, to, to eliminate the other's, <laughs> the other's personhood from the relationship, you can't have a comprehensive union. It's been destroyed by the one who is dominating the other. Now, that's just one example. There are other ways that we could think about how a one flesh union can be destroyed and damaged. And it's up to wise and mature Christians to really think hard and think well about this. So the way that I take and understand putting all these passages together, taking Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and Mark 10 and 1 Corinthians 7 and other passages we haven't looked at, I think the wisest approach is to recognize that that these, these passages aren't a timeless moral code limiting divorce to only two situations, sexual immorality or desertion. Rather, I think the best way to understand these passages together is to see that, hey, they are reestablishing, first of all, they're reestablishing the foundational equality of both spouses within the marriage. Both can equally offend the other. Also reinforcing the desire, and Jesus does this over and over again, reinforces the desire of God that the marriage covenant be maintained. It's not supposed to be loosely thrown off or cast off. At the same time, there's tension here. These different passages in Scripture about marriage, remarriage, divorce are showing hey, divorce is permissible in cases where the covenant has been violated or abandoned, but also both parties are supposed to remain committed to the covenant, regardless of the difficulty. So there's a lot to wisely hold in tension here. And I want to especially point out and get you to notice that last word I said, difficulty, not destructiveness. I think it's possible for the wisdom of the church to allow for divorce in circumstances other than just sexual immorality or abandonment. But at the same time, we have to keep in mind that difficulty in a marriage is not the same thing as destructiveness in a marriage. Difficulty is not the same thing as destroying a covenant. Okay? Difficulties call for faithfulness, for perseverance, for courage. Courage to stay even when the future is not sure, it is not safe, and it is not secure. But when one spouse abandons the covenant or destroys the covenant through their actions, then divorce, that's destruction. That's not just difficulty. And so divorce is not only permissible, but may be the wisest thing to do in some circumstances. To put it more succinctly, I think when you read the Bible all the way through and try to understand all of the divorce and remarriages passages in context, it's teaching that marriage is so foundational and vital that divorce is never a first option, but may have to be a, a last resort in destructive circumstances. So how does all that apply to us? 
Well, I think probably the way we read Matthew 5 and some of these other passages is going to have a a, a lot, it's going to depend a lot on the sort of circumstance of life that we find ourselves in right now. So if you are single, for instance, I'll I'll speak to you first, those who are single, especially those who are single and, and desperately want to be married. Let me just say this, marriage will not solve your loneliness, Marriage is not going to fill the hole in your heart that is longing to be loved and to be accepted and to be united to someone else. The most common thing that pastors hear, I think, in marriage counseling is, I feel so alone. And the most common thing pastors hear in counseling singles is them saying, I feel so alone. Loneliness is the problem. Marriage, singleness, they're not the solution. Because no other one person can fill up the entirety of that hole of longing you've got in yourself. Marriage isn't going to do it. And even the most recent, well, thankfully getting less recent, uh, lockdowns and restrictions and all the COVID-19 stuff showed us that for a lot of marriages and a lot of relationships, the only reason they were still in existence was because the two people spent so much time apart at work or caring for kids. It was when they were forced together that they realized, oh, we've got a lot of stuff we haven't dealt with. Marriage isn't going to solve feeling alone, and another person's love isn't going to save you. I mean, at best, it will point you to the one who will save you. Now, if you are divorced or you've gone through a divorce, then some of what we've talked about here is probably hitting you in a different way. If, if you've experienced this or you've been affected by a parent's divorce, you know, a lot of what Jesus says, a lot of what Paul says can come across as uh, hurtful to hear or difficult to accept. And I know culturally we tend to downplay the the damaging effects of divorce, and that's largely, I think, so that we can feel a little bit better about divorces when they happen, so so we don't have to acknowledge how damaging they can be or feel less guilty about seeking a divorce. And and unfortunately, the church has has largely responded by overemphasizing the importance of marriage uh, to the point where marriage becomes an idol, and those that have gone through or experienced a divorce, then are are just left uh, with this impression that they have committed, you know, the unpardonable sin. Great. Look what you've done. You've screwed up your life for the rest of your life. And we have so many divorced folks who are, are, are trapped between a world that tells them divorce is no big deal. Why are you so emotional? And a church that says you've just ruined your life. And neither are true, right? Neither are true. And so if you are divorced or you've been divorced in the past or you're facing down a divorce that you are not asking for and that you don't want, then don't read just these two verses all by themselves. Because it may lead you to accidentally conclude that somehow you have outrun the grace of God. That he has nothing more for you or nothing more to say to you because, well these two verses, that's all there is. No, like if, if your marriage ended because your spouse broke your marriage covenant um, through unfaithfulness or through abuse or through abandonment uh, or through attempting to control you by replacing your mind, your will, your spirit with their own or, or just because they said, I, this isn't worth it anymore, I'm out. If that's you, then, then as a church, we, we lament 
with you. We want to sit with you and cry with you and cry out to God for justice for you and be your family with you as you grapple with this hurt. And, and we also want to remind you, you are not less valuable to God or to us because this has happened. You are not less loved. You are not less worthy. You are not less reliable. You are not tr- less trustworthy. You are not less of a person. We don't look at you as a pariah. You're not a second-class citizen, and you're not a failure. Because the grace of God runs after all of us. Divorce is not the unforgivable, the unpardonable sin. It is a sad consequence of marriage in a fallen world of of broken people whose brokenness sometimes overwhelms their desire or their ability to reconcile or to stay in a relationship. But divorce is not the end. In the end, God will make all things new. And somehow they will be better for having been broken. And I don't understand it, but that's what he's promised. If you are, on the other hand, you know, remarried, uh, whether because of a divorce or the death of, of a spouse, this, this may hit you a little bit differently. So, so let me say uh, to those of you who are remarried, we, we are grateful and overjoyed that you found a new union after the loss of your previous covenant. That's a cause for rejoicing. And I imagine that the, there was a lot of difficulty there in wanting to trust again of balancing the twin desire to be known and the fear of being rejected, rejected again. And balancing those two things and then moving in courage towards vulnerability and, and openness. And I know some who have gone through divorce are carrying a load of guilt from the previous relationship. Either guilt at having contributed to how the marriage broke down or guilt about the circumstances or just guilt that they didn't see it coming. And why didn't I know? Why couldn't I have done more? Again, we have to remember God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's love is greater than any guilt you can carry. And the guilt of a divorce, wrongful or not, the guilt is not any greater, it's not any more difficult for God to forgive, it's not any harder for God to overcome than any other type of guilt that we carry. There is grace and forgiveness and mercy and love in God and in His people. And if you're remarried, you've been given a second chance to live in faithfulness, to live in a relationship with God and your spouse in light of the coming kingdom that Jesus came to proclaim, the kingdom of grace and forgiveness and faithfulness. Now, uh, to those who are married, happily or not, I mean, you already know that marriage is a wonderful and difficult and beautiful and frustrating and glorious and infuriating gift, right? Like any other gift. You're like, did this come with a receipt? <laughs> can, I t- can I take it back to the store and get my money back? Or at least store credit, whatever that would be. But if you are married right now, if you are married, we got to recognize that our marriage vows, the vows we took, the covenantal promise that we made to one another is a promise to live in stability with the other person. Because if you are in a marriage only conditionally, right, only as long as uh, your spouse uh, is able to make you feel loved, 
If you're in a marriage only based on your spouse's ability to satisfy your sexual desires or their ability to make you feel respected and honored, then you're saying that at the end of the day, you reserve the right to decide when you've had enough. But when you swore, when you vowed, till death do us part, you gave up the right to determine that there's only so much you can take. That's why marriage, the marriage covenant, any covenant, that's why any covenant is a dangerous commitment to make. That's why so many of our marriage liturgies remind us we're supposed to enter into this covenant with a sober mind because you're doing something serious. Now, keep in mind what I said before about covenant abandonment and destructiveness. There are legitimate reasons for ending a marriage, but the fact that the other person is different from you isn't one of them. I had a prophet in seminary who would always say, if you and your spouse never fight, one of you is redundant. And every time I preach a wedding, I get the opportunity to remind the bride and the groom and everyone listening of one of my favorite quotes about marriage uh, from a Christian ethicist, a guy named Lewis Smeeds, uh, who wrote, my wife has been married to seven different men in her lifetime, and all of them were me. Because the joy of committed love is discovering again and again who you are and who your spouse is as you both age and grow and wrestle with becoming more like Christ. It's beautiful and vulnerable and difficult and infuriating and a hard, hard gift. And it's one of the ways, it's not the only way, but it is one of the ways that we exercise the most difficult spiritual discipline of them all to stand quietly next to the same person for a lifetime. To stand in our obligations, whether it's to a family, to a spouse, to friends, or a community, or a neighborhood, or a church, or an employer, to stand in our obligations is to stand in faithfulness to the God whose kingdom is coming. And the good kingdom of God is made known and made visible when we bind ourselves to one another and in faithfulness hold fast to our commitments. A few years back, I was part of one of our yearly mission trips to Spain where we were working with the Dodrells and the Stows and their evangelistic uh, English camp in the hills outside of, of Barcelona. Uh, we were in a small group uh, one afternoon talking about relationships and freedom and marriage and all those big topics that like 14-year-olds talk about when they think they know everything. And one of the kids said, I'm never going to get married. I don't ever want to get married. I don't want to lose my freedom. I want to be free to experience whatever I want to experience. And it was, um, it was later in the week, and I was tired. And I, I admit I found his, his cavalier attitude a bit uh, offensive. So I didn't, I didn't respond as pastorally as maybe I should have. So I'm sure it sounded condescending when I said to him something like, I don't remember it exactly, and I've made it sound better here than it probably was in person. I said, you know what? You can keep your freedom. You can keep your freedom. I don't want it. Bind me to my family. Bind me to my commitments, and I will be freer than you will ever be. I told him I will gladly trade your freedom for the deep joy of profoundly knowing my wife and the joy of hearing daddy every time I walk in the door. 
told the kid, you may be free to experience life, but my commitments make me free to experience love. And I'll take that any day. Now, marriage and parenting is not the only way that God has designed for us to experience this kind of love. Friendship and church, family, brotherhood, sisterhood are all equally profound avenues through which we experience this kind of love over, the, over a lifetime. But they all have this one thing in common, commitment. Commitments made to protect love from whatever the future may bring. So why does Jesus say no to divorce except in the most destructive of circumstances? Well, not because he's trying to stifle your joy or rob you of your freedom, but because he wants you to be free to experience the deepest of joys that comes only from the longest of commitments. There are good things in this world that can only be discovered through time, a lifetime with a spouse, a lifetime with a friend, a lifetime with a family, a lifetime with a church, a lifetime with your God. And it is God's foundational, fundamental, faithful, lifetime commitment to you that makes us able to give a lifetime commitment to others. So you committed for a lifetime? Let's pray. Father, you call us to the most difficult things of all, self-sacrificial faithfulness. And yet that is what you did for us in the person of Jesus on the cross. Father, as we consider what you have done for us, help us to live out that faithfulness in our own relationships, whether it's in our marriages, our friendships, our church, our our workplaces, our neighborhoods, wherever we are, let us live your faithfulness and so image the kingdom to come for those that need to see your goodness and to experience your faithfulness through us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.